So for the sake of clarity, I want to start with the question that is really in the second part of this passage, the issue of marital desertion. It's considered by Paul in verses 12 through 16. And I want to start with marital desertion because I think as a category of divorce, it's clearer for us. First, notice in verse 12, if you have, by the way, I'm sorry I didn't tell you, we're in 1 Corinthians 7, and we're looking at verses 10 through 16. So if you want to go there, and you can, please feel free to do that, and I'll just give you a second to do that if you want to pull that up. So I want you to notice in verse 12 when Paul says, to the rest I say, not I, or not the Lord, but I, or in, in my version, but to the rest I say, not the Lord. What he's gonna tell them, he's saying, is not what Jesus spoke to the people when he was on earth. Paul is not speaking about what Jesus himself addressed to the people of Israel. He is speaking by the Holy Spirit in his authority as an apostle of Christ to the Gentiles. In other words, he's not saying, oh, since Jesus didn't say this and I'm saying this, don't worry about it. No, he's saying this isn't in the gospel witness that even at that point, Paul had some knowledge of, of Jesus' three years of preaching on earth. And that makes perfect sense because Jesus did not speak to the issue that Paul is speaking of here, which is the marriage between unbelievers and believers because Jesus taught a Jewish culture in which all people professed to worship Yahweh, in which all marriages were between believers. This speaks to the issue of why didn't Jesus ever speak against homosexuality or idolatry in the Jewish culture. Those things were, were, were not widely practiced in the Jewish culture as far as people know. They were widely practiced in the Greco-Roman culture and there were no debates about those issues in the Jewish culture. It isn't because Jesus didn't care about idolatry literally practiced. It was because by the time Jesus had come, God had done a work to remove the literal practice of idolatry from Israel. And that's why you find when Paul goes into Corinth and he goes into Rome, he has to talk about idolatry all the time. Just he has to talk about homosexuality several times because those things were prevalent in those cultures. So Jesus didn't speak to this issue of marriage between believers and unbelievers because of, he was in a nation of professing believers. But Paul is writing to new Christians who are born again in a pagan culture. They didn't typically, it's probably unlikely that many if any of these people grew up in a Christian home. Their Christian home started a few years ago. They, they were saved within the culture they were already in. And they were already in marriages when they received the gospel and were saved. As far as we can tell from this writing and from what Paul will say later to those who are not yet married. But, but not only that, this was a culture in which marriages were arguably expected to end in divorce. And rare was the marriage that was ended by death in old age. One commentator is quoting a funeral inscription from the first century BC. And here's what the first century BC in this culture says. It says, uncommon, this is written on a funeral um, inscription, a tombstone. Uncommon are marriages which last so long, brought to an end by death and not broken apart by divorce. For it was our happy lot, the husband and wife buried together, that it should be prolonged to the 30, 41st year without estrangement. So they lived and died after 41 years together, 
and it starts, uncommon are marriages which last so long, brought to an end by death, not by divorce. And relatedly, the culture was filled with sexual immorality as a rule. Prostitution, pornographic sex shows, fornication, adultery, functional concubines, male and female, were owned by supposed masters. So the new hearts of the new believer clashed with these old ways. And so they wrote to Paul. A lot of what 1 Corinthians is, is a letter, is Paul answering questions that we don't have, which is a disadvantage to scholars who try to understand what Paul's saying. Paul's not writing a systematic theology, kind of like he does in Romans. He's answering specific questions. We don't have those specific questions, so we have to do our best with our brains and the Holy Spirit's help. But the point is, what's obvious is that the clashes of culture and worldview were creating tensions and even fear in some of the Christians. And what should we do? What should we do? And one question they had was this, what if my husband or wife is not a believer in Christ? He worships at the temple of Eldephi or Aphrodite. Or, and since in the Old Testament, God had commanded, at least in one place we know of, the Jews to leave marriages that they had disobediently entered into to idol worshipers. Well, should the Christian leave a marriage with a non-Christian? And what Paul says is, is no. He says no. If any brother has an unbelieving wife and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. And then Paul says, you know, because one of their concerns was, well, does this, does this defile me? I'm in a one flesh relationship with someone who worships demons. Aren't I defiled by this? Paul says, No. He says this curious thing. He says, they're holy. They're sanctified by their marriage to you. Well, this is weird because in the Old Testament, it seemed that the idol worshiper defiled the Yahweh worshiper. But now Paul says, Jesus does something different. The Jesus in you isn't defiled by a, a legitimate marriage to an unbeliever. He actually undefiles the unbeliever. Paul doesn't explain fully how and why Jesus does this, but we see a beautiful parallel of this in the Gospels. In Mark 1, we, we, we read this. Because I, I think this is an analogy of what's going on here. I think there's a spiritual corollary here. Listen to this story from Mark 1. A man with leprosy, that is an unclean, defiled Jew, came to Jesus and bowed down before him. And he said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out with his hand and touched him. Saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one but go show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And we don't know enough about Jewish culture to know everything that, that, that this meant for this man. But as a leper, he was ostracized from society. He had to live in a separate place. He couldn't worship. He couldn't be with the people. He was with a, you know, in a leper colony at best. He was cut off from everything that he knew and everything that he loved. And Jesus touches him, which, by the way, was forbidden 
in the Old Testament to touch a leper. That should have rendered Jesus unclean, just like the leper. But Jesus, and he didn't have to touch him, by the way. Jesus could have just said, be clean. But he specifically, on purpose, touches the unclean man. And the point is, when God the Son comes to earth, in the new covenant that he's brought, and not in the old covenant, when he touches your uncleanliness, it's not his holiness that gets destroyed, it's your uncleanliness that gets destroyed. Jesus is that powerful. I love guitar pedals. And I'm sure some of you guys who know electronics can come up with way more better examples, but guitar pedals are, are awesome. But if you put the wrong plug with too much juice in the back of that guitar pedal, like the guitar pedals are, you know, if I play a chord, bring, the guitar pedal make the, car, the guitar go, bring, 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 bring. We use them all the time here. And, and I just love them. I love, they do all kinds of different things. But if you put the wrong chord into that guitar pedal, if you put the wrong power supply, poof, blows up the whole pedal and you can open it up and you can see all the smoke and all the dirt and all the grime. It overloads the system. That's what Jesus does to unclean people when he comes into their situation. He overloads the system and the uncleanliness gets destroyed. So that marriage between a believer and an unbeliever, because Jesus overloads the defilement system, the uncleanliness system, it becomes clean to God. Just as Christ made the ceremoniously unclean leper clean by his ultimate indestructible cleanness, so believers make their unbelieving spouses clean or holy by the believer's union with Christ and his holiness. Now, I obviously need to make something really clear here. That does not mean the unbelieving spouse is saved by marriage. They are not given eternal life via marriage. And you can see that clearly right here in verse 16 when Paul makes clear at the end when, when he says, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know husband whether you will save your wife? So we're not talking about the cleanness of salvation, but what are we talking about? Well, Paul is using language and terms, clean, defiled, holy, which relate to those Old Testament worship concepts, including the religious tools that were used in temple worship. Tools like lampstands and altars. Things that were set apart for Yahweh's use. So Paul is at, is at least saying that the unbelieving spouse will not defile or make unholy the believer, but rather they, the unbelieving spouse, has now been set apart for a special purpose and use of the Lord. He is saying that God will bless that spouse in a special way because they are married to a believing spouse and that he will bless the marriage and care for the marriage and seek to nourish and protect the marriage. The unbelieving spouse, just like the children, have been set apart in a special way for God's purposes and for his purposes in the life of the believer, which will result in some blessing for the unbeliever. And so, Paul says, essentially, the believing spouse, you don't have to worry that having come to Christ while married to a pagan, that your unbelieving spouse somehow contaminates or defiles you. No, 
You are holy to God. They are holy to God. Your marriage is holy to God. So stay in the marriage, says Paul. And by the Holy Spirit, live for the Lord and love your spouse and be a witness to Christ for them. God is with you. He will help you. He's with your marriage. He's with your children. He will help. He cares. He has a good purpose for you there. And in Christ, he is shining through you, holding out salvation to your precious family. But what if the unbelieving spouse did not want that marriage? What if they did not want to stay? Deep religious differences can be a catalyst for great divisions in homes. Jesus himself said that his coming would lead to great strife in many homes. He said that because of the new life that he would put in his people, he said, from now on, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. This isn't because the Lord loves strife, but because deep loyalties that were once common are now separated. Attitudes and practices that were shared are now in great conflict from obvious ones like drunkenness and drug use to to what you feel right about watching on TV to how much you love money versus how much you you feel like you need to be free of the love of money to the humor you use, to the language you use, from the way you do your taxes ethically or you don't worry about the ethics to what should be taught to your children, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In a marriage with a person who has come to Christ and one who isn't with Christ, the new heart of the believer can no longer live the old ways still loved by their spouse and be at peace. And this has to cause, in some areas, great pain and conflict. Even if the believing spouse tries to love more deeply than ever, in the friction of this new dynamic, the unbelieving spouse might feel great resentment and isolation. And they just may not want the marriage. So what should the believer do in that situation? This isn't a case of sexual immorality that Jesus talked about. This is simply an unbeliever, Paul says, who doesn't want to stay in the marriage. They don't want any part of it anymore. And Paul's command as an apostle of Christ by the Holy Spirit is full of wisdom and full of compassion. He says, you must recognize that you cannot force an unbeliever to live under the same rules as if they were loyal to the same God as you. Obviously, appeals can be made. He's not saying that. But if they do not want to stay married to you, you have to let them go. And of course, in in Greco-Roman culture, not only would there be no legal recourse to force them to stay, both husbands and wives in that culture could divorce their spouses freely. But ironically, it would not serve the gospel to bind someone who rejects Christ to live by his laws about marriage. So Paul says, let them go. And the compassion continues as the verse goes on. The brother or sister in such cases is not under bondage. But God has called us in peace. In the case of a spouse, an unbelieving spouse who deserts 
the believing spouse in marriage. Paul says the believing spouse is not bound. Bound, that's marriage contract language, especially to the Hebrews. The marriage contract that once bound them together in marriage is not to bind them any longer. Let the person go and you are not bound to them any longer. The word reflects ownership language involved in Hebrew nomenclature concerning marriage contracts. It almost has slave ownership nomenclature right to it. The spouse in a marriage contract has exclusive rights, including sexual rights, to their spouse while the marriage covenant remains. They are bound. But if the marriage covenant is truly broken, let's just say by death, just for ease of understanding, the binding no longer remains. So to hear the deserted spouse, Paul says, is not bound any longer. They are free, not bound, just as if their spouse had died. And so what we see here is the second justification for scripture, in scripture for divorce. Desertion by one spouse against another is grounds for divorce and allows the, the believing spouse to remarry because they're not bound to the former marriage contract. Otherwise, they would not be allowed to remarry. That's what it means to be bound to your former contract. Now, we might ask, what if the spouse who deserts their spouse claimed to be a Christian previously? Because that often happens in churches. And our church, like many churches, have determined that if someone claims to be a Christian but refuses to stay in their marriage again and again and again repeatedly after appeal and appeal and appeal, despite no biblical grounds for divorce, they want to be out of the marriage and they have no legit cause. After lovingly confronting them and appealing them, we essentially do all that we can to take them through. We, we would essentially try to do all that we can as long as they're here to take them through a Matthew 18 process and appeal to them to stay faithful to their spouse. But if they leave the marriage anyway, they have effectively excommunicated themselves. And in such cases, the church is commanded by the Lord in Matthew 18 to excommunicate them and treat them as if they were not a believer at all. I, I had to deal with this situation several years ago. One of our precious sisters, her husband claimed to be a believer and then just over time refused to be faithful to the marriage. And I, he left our church but I was able to meet with him and appeal to him. And I said to him, if you were in our church, we would have excommunicated you from our church because he was still claiming to be a Christian. And I said, we would never be able to recognize you as a, a, a believer in good standing, but we would have to treat you as a pagan because of an unbeliever because of what you've done. And it, I was hoping that might wake him up, but it did not. So in, in essence, the situation functionally becomes the same as if the unbeliever, as if, it, as if it is an unbeliever who has deserted their spouse. And in such cases, the, de the deserted spouse, similarly, our senses should not feel bound to the marriage and should feel released to remarry. And of course, these things have a way of working themselves out one way or the other. I don't mean that in a good way. I mean that in a tragic way because the unbelieving spouse who deserts the marriage or the professing Christian spouse who deserts the marriage will often go and get remarried or enter into lifestyles of sexual promiscuity, in which case adultery becomes the double grounds for divorce at that point. 
So desertion is grounds. But one of the big questions that I see come up in churches again and again is this. Does the way, like desertion, let's think about desertion. What Paul is talking about, as far as I can see from the text and everything I've read, is a very specific situation where a person physically is like, I'm done with this marriage. I'm out of here. I don't want to be in this marriage. That's desertion. But one of the big questions that's asked is, is there a way in which a spouse treats their marriage partner in, in such sinful ways, and we're not talking about sexual morality here, but let's say through physical abuse or emotional abuse or drug addiction, does that kind of behavior ever become so bad that it can be called a kind of desertion from the marriage, even if they didn't physically say, I want out and physically I'm moving to Detroit, etc.? And I want to tell you, I cannot answer in a blanket way that question. One commentator puts it really wisely, and I just want, I want, to, I want to be super faithful. I mean, I wish I could say to everyone who, who feels the pain of that, like, here's the answer. But one commentator, I think, says it well. He says this. An argument that divorce may be justified in such cases where material support, that's financial support, emotional support, or marital rights are withheld is susceptible, that argument is susceptible to a dangerously broad interpretation, including any complaints regarding the inadequacy of the emotional, sexual, or material support provided by one's spouse. And then he explains further, and I just think this is gold. He says this, wives and husbands are not well served by either overly lax or overly restrictive interpretations of biblical teachings on divorce and remarriage. It is incumbent upon Christian leaders to provide counsel that takes seriously both God's commitment to the preservation of marriage wherever possible, and his commitment to the protection of the vulnerable. That is, from my hand, my vantage point as a pastor, that is pastoral gold. It is incumbent upon Christian leaders and churches to, I believe, to provide counsel that takes seriously both God's commitment to the preservation of marriage wherever possible. He's holy. This marriage is holy. You don't just casually mess with this thing. But also his commitment to protection of the vulnerable. He's compassionate. He is grieved and greatly affected by the suffering of someone oppressed in a marriage. The vulnerable, and he goes on, those who continue to suffer due to the hardness of humans' hearts. Jesus and Paul rebuked a culture where a man could abandon his wife because he didn't like her body anymore. And they hated that. And we live in a similar culture that moves into spiritual aspects of it. We live in a culture where, where we simply fell out of love. Is increasingly seen as a courageous striving for self-actualization and healthy self-love. 
don't know if you remember, I, I don't mean to be judgmental, but there was a famous couple a few years ago. You might have heard about this because the phrase became kind of, like even the world was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. It, it, they, had a, they had a special ceremony for their divorce. And they called it, I don't want to say their names because I just don't want to be gossipy about them. But they, they, had, they, they officially called it. It was almost like sending out you know, celebration notes. They had a campfire, I think. And they had all their friends come and they had their, what they called a conscious decoupling. That was what it was called. Does anybody remember hearing about that? This, the conscious decoupling. They didn't call it divorce. They didn't say they had an affair. They didn't say, any, it was just like, all our friends are gonna beautifully let us. We came together for a season and now we let go for a season. And we let go now to move into other adventures. Oh, it's beautiful, right? But listen, we'll, we're gonna get into this more as we continue in this subject over the next few weeks. If you let go if you let go of the gospel, there's no reason why that isn't beautiful anymore. If you let go that marriage is a picture of the sacrifice of the son of God who lays down all that he is to be faithful forever to his bride who receives him for all that he is forever. If you let go of that picture, you lose marriage. And to the deconscious, you know, the conscious decoupling, you just have to say, okay. To same-sex marriage, you just have to say, okay. Consensual, you love each other. It's very possible they absolutely love each other and care about each other. Okay. To the mother who wants to marry her adult son, you have to say, okay if you love each other to the four people who want to marry each other, you have to say, okay. And who want to be unmarried in two weeks, you have to say, okay. And who want to be married again three months later, all four of them, you have to say, okay. If marriage means everything and it, it has to mean everything without an absolute God who's given us an absolute in this picture of marriage. If marriage means everything, it means nothing. So, we live in that culture where marriage means more and more and more and less and less and less at the same time. So we need to be careful with what does it mean to say, I, I need to leave her because she's not emotionally satisfying me anymore. She's emotionally harsh to me and I just need to leave her. We need to be careful with that. We need to be really careful with that. And, and yet, everyone knows and feels the idea of a woman who spends her life trapped in a marriage of emotional and physical abuse is horrendously repulsive to our hearts. And we all know instinctively that it must be an abomination to the God who meant marriage to portray his sacrificial, undying, gentle, cherishing, nourishing love for his people. We know that's wrong. We know that's an abomination. And, and just so we're absolutely clear here, a woman hit by her husband should hear, get out now. Louder and faster from the church than she should hear it from anywhere. Brothers and sisters in Christ should be the first to go to the police when violence really threatens either spouse. And I, I've, had, I've been there, I've had to do that. 
and you don't have to get my permission. <laughs> you shouldn't ask for my permission. If you know of a marriage where a spouse is physically threatening their other spouse, you should go to the police. But, but when it comes to divorce for a kind of desertion that is not literal, but a kind of non-physical desertion via abuse or addiction or hard-hearted refusal to give intimacy, I would say we have to be careful and we have to be prayerful. Because marriage and God's heart, it's not math. Like 14 plus seven, oh, quick, we can just get there. We have to seek the Holy Spirit and be really careful. Because there's a reason why we don't have all these permissions about marriage to leave for this and this and this and this. It's not supposed to be something you can leave easily. But this brings us to the curious case of 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11, which is the second part of this passage we're going to look at and the question of separation. And, and I should say here, I, I need a real honest help from my brother, Mike. <laughs> Mike, we could wait or we could keep going today. Do you have an instinct? Can we just pray and if anyone senses the Holy Spirit saying one thing or another and you have the courage to say it? <laughs> Lord, please help. Okay, I'm gonna try to move through this and if, if we have to come back to it, I will, I will try to um, next week. So in verse 10 through 11, Paul says this, to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife is not to leave her husband Listen, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband is not to divorce his wife. That was strange. I mean, not, it's not truly strange, but it's strange to my ears. It's perplexing, but it's revealing. Paul says something clear to the men, not open-ended. He says, don't divorce your wife. He says that twice. Well, he says that here at the end. He, without qualification. Don't divorce your wife, period. It's the end of verse 11. In a world where men were divorcing their wives without cause, he says, don't do it. Flee the old demonic ways that men treat the women in Greece. Christ laid down his life for his wife forever. You do the same forever, ever. Christ is eternally faithful to his wife. You be the same. But notice what he says to the women. The wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. This is curious. A wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. In other words, if she leaves, she's still bound. She can't remarry. The marriage contract is still binding. But if the marriage is still binding, then this cannot be a case of either sexual or immorality, which we saw in Matthew 19, or desertion, which we see in these verses later in 12 through 16, because those both unbind the spouse. So she hasn't been deserted, but something's led her to leave. It's not an affair he had. It's not porn addiction or homosexual relationship that the man has found. Otherwise, she would no longer be bound. It's not desertion, but she's left. And Paul says to her, either stay celibate or go be reconciled to your husband. So what is going on in here? 
Well, here's my best sense. In a culture in which women, and still are, but women were particularly vulnerable to economic and social vulnerabilities that the men were not. And in a dynamic from nature, according to God's design, in which men are generally much, much stronger, able to overpower, and in which women, by virtue of their roles as childbearers, were often physically, not just economically, but physically vulnerable to, and even dependent at times on their husbands greatly. And and when you compound all this together, you have this big wave of economic, societal, and physical vulnerability borne by women that's not born typically by men. And that, all that comes together to create a, a, an emotional vulnerability that's there as well if it's not there in the, in the way God's designed our minds and our hormones and our brains, which some people think is there, whether or not it is. The, the point is the woman is vulnerable in a way that the man is not. And in the midst of all that, I believe God is, through Paul, displaying God's compassion and care for vulnerable women in a way that he does not, at least here in these passages, give us a a window to for the men. He doesn't say to the woman, don't leave your husband, but if you do, stand married or be reconciled to him. To the men, don't divorce your wives, but if you do, there's no but if you do for the men. Do you see what I'm saying? It's not there, but there is for the women. So I think it's possible that Paul had in mind a situation we alluded to above in which a woman is being so harshly and poorly treated by her husband that though it may not be an issue of sexual immorality and though it may not rise to the level of desertion, she decides that she would rather live away from him and be separated and celibate than she would be willing to stay under his roof. I don't know what else to do with that. That's in the Bible and I'm, that's a Mack truck I'm not gonna get in front of. I'm not gonna bind as a pastor a woman to stay with a cruel husband. I, I can't do that because of the Bible. And I don't wanna make a, 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 e, like a lax culture of marriage. I don't wanna do that, but I'm not gonna get in front of that. Because if God asked me about that, I'll just pull out, I mean, on the last day, you know, that, that man who was a drunk and he wouldn't repent and the wife just said, I, I can't stand under this roof anymore. He's awful to me. His words are awful to me. He's, but I didn't feel the conscience to, this wasn't desertion to me and, 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 I'm, and, I, and she comes to me and she says, I think I have to leave and, and Albert, you said to her, okay. And then God says at the final day, what did you do? I'm gonna pull out 1 Corinthians 7. I'm gonna say, what did you do, Lord? (laughs) I don't think we're gonna have that conversation. My point is that's in his word. A woman I knew at a church about 15 years ago was married to a terrible cocaine addict and she decided it was better to live celibate than than with him. It was a horrible situation for her pastors and the whole church because initially they saw they didn't feel that was right and they started to move towards discipline. It's horrible (laughs) and they repented. And they ultimately refused to bind her conscience to live with him. And I believe they did the right thing because of 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. I mean, they were trying to protect the dignity of marriage and the holiness of God. But in the process, they needed to make sure they were careful with the holy compassion of God. But I, I hope you can see from these passages, there's no hard and fast technical manual on what to do with deep wounds and serious transgressions in marriage covenants. 
They're not math problems. We can't take a description given in a few minutes and easily come up with a perfect answer. We must honor the holiness of God in a way that treats this covenant of marriage that he gave us as holy because he is holy. When I was growing up in my home, my mom had a very difficult, and I love my mom and I, I, have, all, I have hope that she's with the Lord and she was so good to me and I love her right now. I just want you guys to know, like I, my mom was amazing to me in so many ways. I'm, I'm absolutely grateful for her. Like without qualification, I'm grateful for my mom. But she had a lifelong struggle with drunkenness. She often fought to stay sober, but she often fell in her desire to drink. And when I was a little boy, like 10, 11, 12, I remember driving around with my dad and my sister on nights that she was not sober. And my dad was so distraught and he would ask out loud in the car what he should do. These little kids. But we were new to the area and he didn't have a lot of friends to talk to. He couldn't tell work, you know, because that would have been potentially used against him in his mind. There was great, great pain in his heart. And I don't know all that he did that was right or wrong. Like I, w- I was 12, you know, but I believe, and my mom did better as she got older, but I believe that my dad, at least part of what was going on in his heart was he took his marriage vows seriously enough to see that divorce was something he deeply didn't want to give himself too much room to consider. My parents stayed together and to this day, I'm glad for that. Like I, like I said, I was young, but I, I didn't see and I don't know that my dad had grounds for biblical divorce. And I think God's holiness in marriage was at least honored in that aspect. I mean, there were other ways my parents' marriage was not ideal, but in that aspect of my dad not leaving my mom, I think there was an aspect of holiness that was honored in the imaging of God and his faithfulness to stay with a spouse who struggles with sin. But we also have to honor the compassion of God in the way that we treat the vulnerable. Because God is a God of great compassion. Another important marriage in my growing up in my little world as a boy was the marriage of my mom's brother. Now this man cheated, like had an affair full on with several, several times with his secretary. It was scandalous in our extended family. She, the, the wife, had six young kids, my cousins. She was a great mother and wife to them all. And finally, she could, that, from what I could see, you know, in, in, in all of their testimony as they've grown up, she was great. But she could, finally, she could not bear the treachery anymore, and she divorced him. And she had biblical grounds and stood on those grounds and left the marriage that he broke. But her church was very strict on marriage and divorce. And my best recollection is that they would, even though they knew this was adultery, they would not honor her decision. And I think they even denied her the right to communion. And she eventually met, they had, a, they had a no divorce policy as a church, as a whole big church, like denominationally. And she eventually met a man who deeply loved her and cared for her children. But, but I'm pretty sure the church, without any grounds biblically, would not allow her to remarry. They would not bless it. And in her loneliness and her love for him and his love for her, she remarried anyway. And, you know, I think she was denied communion. I don't know if she ever was able to receive communion again. She didn't leave the church like going to church on Sundays and stuff like that. It was, it was the Catholic church. But, but her church, and I don't, I don't know enough about Catholicism anymore to know how they apply these laws. I just know what happened in the diocese that she was in in Buffalo. But her church had no right to forbid her from the Lord's table or from remarriage. 
on, on the basis of the word of God. And when I think of how her church treated her, and I think of Jesus' anger and grief at the religious leaders of his day, when he said, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. I think about God's compassion, his holy compassion for the suffering and the vulnerable and the oppressed. So we gotta do both things. We gotta hold his holiness and compassion together. Like it's easy for people to treat marriage casually and to fail to stand in the fear of the Lord and hear his words. What God has joined together, let no man separate. But it's also, it can be easy and a danger for religious people to condemn others for seeking relief from their suffering in, from a sinning spouse when God in his compassion allows it in his word. We have to hold these things together. We don't, we, we're not really treating people with compassion when we help them run easily from his holy claims on their lives. When we bless a divorce that mocks his holiness. When we say, you're free. When God says, no, you're bound. That's not compassion. But conversely, we don't honor his holiness when we call people to bear burdens that they're not called to bear in scripture and we deny them relief in legitimate biblical divorces and legitimate biblical remarriages when God's holy word gives them that relief. When we say, in other words, you're bound. When God says, you may be free. You don't have to leave, but you may. You're not bound if you don't want to be. We gotta keep them both together. Does that make sense? That's what we see about God in these laws, in, these, in this council. We see his compassion. We see his holiness. So as we conclude with the Lord's Supper, we remember we serve a holy God and a compassionate God. We serve a holy God, a God who never winks at our sin or compromises his holiness, who keeps a record of them all and who must punish all evil, lest he be guilty of injustice. We serve a holy God, and yet we serve a God of great compassion, who takes that record of our sins, and though he knows it, he decides to throw it as far as the east is from the west. Because he's a God who would rather die the death of a condemned criminal covered with that record of all our sins rather than allow us, his bride, to enter eternity without him. In the cross of Jesus Christ, holiness and compassion are friends. Holiness and compassion are reconciled. So let's remember our husband redeemer. Let's remember our husband, our faithful husband, who pours out his own holy blood, holy blood, to pay for all of the sins of the bride that he cherishes with all of his heart so that their marriage would never end but be continually nourished and protected by his holy blood, a sufficient sacrifice for all time.